The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Due to the graphic nature of this criminal's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, violence, mutilation, dismemberment, and beheading that some may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Rain pattered down on Paris's cobblestone streets, drenching the carriage driving Charlotte Corday to her execution site. She held her head high, ready for what was to come. Her wavy, mouse-brown hair had been shorn, cut hastily so it wouldn't slow the guillotine's blade. A mob shouted at her, shaming her and shaking their fists. Four days previous, she had killed Jean-Paul Marat, a leader of the French Revolution and the Parisian's hero. She walked into his house and stabbed him through the heart, and she had shown no remorse. As the carriage pulled up to the guillotine, a man accompanied Charlotte up to the executioner's square. As she came face to face with the guillotine, her guard didn't want her to look at it. There was an innocence he saw in this young woman, and he was worried she'd be scared. But all she had to say was, quote, I have a right to be curious. I've never seen one before. End quote. As she stood there in her last moments alive, just 10 days before her 25th birthday, she took in the machine, the angry mob, the capital of her beloved country, and she hoped, beyond all hope, that her execution wouldn't be in vain. In a letter she wrote before she committed her murder, Charlotte said, quote, O oh France, thy peace depends on the fulfillment of the law. I'm not assailing it in killing Marat, who has been condemned by the whole world. He is outside the law. If I'm guilty, then Hercules too was guilty when he killed the monsters. But did he ever meet one so odious? End quote. Now, in the summer rain and darkness of night, as Charlotte Corday laid her head on the cold wood of the guillotine, she could only hope that she was right, that Paris would finally be at peace.
picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals. Today, we're finishing up our two-part episode about Charlotte Corday, political martyr of the French Revolution. She assassinated radical Jacobin leader Jean-Paul Marat in 1793, in the hope that his death would end the violence and killing in Paris. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of ParCast shows on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Many of you have asked how to help the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. Charlotte Corday was born in Caen, France, to a poor but technically noble family. She was interested in religion, philosophy, and stories of heroes and heroism. Charlotte was 21 and living at a convent when the revolution began in 1789. From there, she watched as violence and murder broke out among the two rival revolutionary factions, the Jacobins and the Girondists. Charlotte sided with the Girondists, moderate leaders who wanted to achieve freedom in a nonviolent manner. The Jacobins wanted to achieve their goals by killing the king and queen, overthrowing the monarchy, and eliminating anyone in their way, including the Girondists. Jean-Paul Marat was a member of the most extreme Jacobin group, the Montagnards. He had declared war on the Girondists, so the Girondists wanted him out. So did Charlotte. In episode one, we talked about Charlotte's upbringing, her life during the early years of the revolution, and her decision to travel to Paris to assassinate Jean-Paul Marat. In this episode, we'll follow her on her solo journey to Paris, the assassination, and her swift execution. In June 1793, four years into the French Revolution, the Jacobins kicked the Girondist deputies out of their governmental roles in Paris. These displaced deputies traveled to Charlotte's small town of Caen, France, and continued to hold meetings there. Though the meetings were mainly full of men, Charlotte began attending them with her friend, Augustin Leclerc. Charlotte lived with her elderly cousin, and Leclerc managed her cousin's trust. Charlotte and Leclerc had bonded over their support of the Girondists and the revolution. At the Girondist meetings, Charlotte met one of the deputies, Charles Barbaroux. Barbaroux headed up the opposition assembly, an organization that was opposed to the leadership of the Jacobins, and specifically Jean-Paul Marat. The opposition assembly published nine political pamphlets in June, which they sent to their supporters in Paris and throughout France. According to writer Michael Corday, a descendant of Charlotte's family and author of the biography Charlotte Corday, quote, On the 18th of June, Barbaroux had addressed a stirring manifesto to his fellow citizens in Marseille. Men of France, let us march on Paris, not to fight the people of Paris, but to deliver them and safeguard the unity of the Republic, one and divisible, end quote. Charlotte was glad to hear Barbaroux wanted to take action, but she was concerned for the lives of the men who would go. She was an overly empathetic person and constantly worried about the safety of others. 
In early July, Charlotte discovered she and Barbaroux had a mutual friend, a young woman named Alexandrine de Forbon. Alexandrine had worked at the convent where Charlotte studied, which had shut down when all convents and monasteries were forced to close. She was entitled to a pension from the French government for losing her job, but because she had moved to Switzerland during the revolution, the government had denied her this pension. Charlotte hoped Barbaroux could write her a letter of introduction to meet Claude Lowe's de Perret, a deputy of the Legislative Assembly in Paris. She would meet with him to appeal her friend's case. Charlotte was a selfless, altruistic person. She really did want to help her friend. But she also had a darker plan in mind that had been brewing since the Girondists had arrived in her town back in June. Part of Charlotte's purpose in concocting this plan was so that she could go to Paris and assassinate Jean-Paul Marat in front of a crowd at a meeting of the Legislative Assembly. She didn't tell her plan to Barbaroux or Leclerc or anyone for that matter. Charlotte was afraid to tell anyone her plan for multiple reasons. Most pressingly, she didn't want anyone to try to stop her. A young woman traveling alone to kill someone would surely be alarming to anyone. These concepts were unheard of. Additionally, she didn't want anyone else to be involved in this murderous plan because she didn't want them to be punished on her behalf. Charlotte's plan was to kill Marat in front of a crowd. She presumed that the mob would then turn on her and beat her to death. That way, no one would ever know exactly what happened or who was responsible. Therefore, Marat would be dead, but the Girondists would not be held responsible for it. She hoped that this would stop the war between the two factions. Believing her innocent plan of wanting to help her friend, Barbaroux wrote to Lose de Perret on behalf of Charlotte and her friend Alexandrine. But he didn't receive any correspondence back. Charlotte decided that she would go to Paris to meet with him, carrying a letter of introduction from Barbaroux. She nonchalantly mentioned to Barbaroux that if he had any letters, pamphlets, or correspondence for his Girondist friends in Paris, she would be happy to deliver them. On July 7th, within a week of Charlotte's entreaty to Barbaroux, the opposition assembly in Cannes called for volunteer men who would travel to Paris to overthrow Marat. They would pay the men two francs per day. Out of all the Girondists in the town of Cannes, only 17 men volunteered. Charlotte didn't think this was a good plan. She worried that word would get to Marat before the men got to Paris, which was at least a day's ride by carriage, and that they would fail at their mission. There were Jacobin supporters in Cannes, and she didn't want them to talk and get this small army killed. She felt that if she could surprise Marat, she would succeed in killing him. By doing this, she would achieve the Girondist goal, as well as saving her friends. She knew that this would lead to her death, but she didn't seem to care. She believed that the only way to save France was by killing Marat, and that this was her duty. Charlotte took altruism to the extreme. Psychologist Kendra Cherry defines altruism as the unselfish concern for other people, doing things simply out of a desire to help, not because you feel obligated to. Before we jump into the psychology here, just a brief disclaimer. Vanessa's not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but she's done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Sammy. In the last episode, we talked about how Charlotte had an extreme amount of empathy. Her father was an empathetic, charitable person, and she most likely inherited this sense of altruism from him. 
Altruism can be wonderful, both for those who give it and for those who receive it. But when it eclipses a person's concern for their own well-being, it can be harmful to the altruistic individual. This sounds like an instance of too much of a good thing. That's right. According to psychologist Craig D. Marker, there are many similarities between extreme altruists and psychopaths. While the two are opposites, altruists are overly empathetic and psychopaths lack empathy. They share some traits in common. Marker says, quote, Some of the similarities include impulsivity, need for novelty, and the tendency to break rules, end quote. We can see this impulsivity in the fact that Charlotte made her decision to kill Marat and die for her country, and then acted on it in the time span of just a few weeks. In his article in Psychology Today, Marker includes a quote from psychologist Andrea Kuchevsky. Kuchevsky says that extreme altruists are, quote, compelled to do good, even when doing so makes no sense and brings harm upon them. They cannot tolerate injustice and go to extreme lengths to help those who have been wronged, regardless of their personal relationship to them, end quote. I do wonder, though, whether there was a chance that Charlotte may have wanted the fame that came with being a hero of the revolution. Perhaps she wasn't entirely altruistic, but was looking for a way to stamp her own name on history. It's possible, but it doesn't seem likely to me, since her plan was to kill Marat and then be killed by the mob without anyone identifying her. We can assume that glory wasn't her goal. There was really only one moment when this desire for fame slipped out. She was human, after all. After the July 7, 1793 meeting, where the 17 men volunteered to overthrow Marat, Charlotte decided to join Barbaru and some other Girondists in a salon. She had already secretly decided to assassinate Marat at this time. As she spoke with them, Jerome Petion, a Girondist politician and former mayor of Paris, joined them. According to the book Charlotte Corday, Petion called Charlotte the beautiful aristocrat who came to visit the Republicans. She was offended by this comment. She had already made a plan to save Paris, and she certainly didn't identify with other aristocrats. Charlotte told Petion, You are judging me without knowing me, Citizen Petion. One day you will know who I am. This is the only thing Charlotte did or said that remotely hinted at a desire for fame. But her plan and actions don't support that desire. Charlotte went forward with her plan. The only time it seemed to get to her was after the meeting on July 7th. According to the book Charlotte Corday, that evening, her cousin found her crying. She asked what Charlotte was crying about, and Charlotte said, quote, I am weeping for the misfortunes of my country, for my family, and for you. As long as Marat is alive, who can be sure of life? End quote. This is just another example of Charlotte's extreme empathy. She couldn't be happy as long as the people of France were being tortured. It's important to note here that Marat wasn't the only Jacobin leader committing violence. Other Jacobin leaders, such as Maximilien Robespierre, were also responsible for the violence that plagued the revolution. Charlotte may have specifically focused on Marat because he was responsible for the September massacres in 1792 one year earlier. During the September massacres, roughly 1,400 people were killed in just nine days. Many of them were Charlotte's Girondist friends. Understandably, Charlotte took this very hard. According to the book Charlotte Corday, 
Charlotte may have wanted to kill Marat specifically ever since the massacres. On Monday, July 8th, the day after the Girondists came up with their 17-man plan, Barbaru gave Charlotte the letter of introduction to Lowe's de Perret so she could meet him in Paris. At this point, Charlotte began telling her friends and her cousin that she had decided to go live in the countryside with her father. Argentan, the town where her father and sister lived, was about 50 miles south of Caen. In reality, though, Charlotte would never see her father or sister again. On Tuesday, July 9, 1793, Charlotte wrote a letter to her father. She told him that she was going to England to live with her uncle. She had lived with her uncle when she was a child, so this probably wouldn't have been much of a surprise to him. She told him this lie so that when she was anonymously killed by the mob as planned, he wouldn't have any reason to think it was her. If everything went according to plan, he would go the rest of his life believing she was in England. She ended her letter by saying, quote, I'm posting this letter just before leaving, and when you receive it, I shall no longer be in this country. End quote. On July 10th, Charlotte left on the journey to Paris to do what she believed no one else could, kill Marat and bring peace to France. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. Now, our story continues. On July 10th, 1793, 24-year-old Charlotte Corday traveled by coach to Paris with assassination on the mind. She had never been to Paris before, and she shared the coach with about 10 other passengers, all of whom belonged to the extreme Jacobin sect headed by Jean-Paul Marat. The journey was hot, and the company was unbearable. Listening to the others talk about their beliefs and about Marat made Charlotte's skin crawl. There was also an annoying man traveling with her who kept telling everyone that he knew her. She pretended to sleep in order to escape conversation with him. She was an altruistic person, but not always a patient one. She had other things on her mind. Charlotte arrived in Paris the next day, on Thursday, July 11th. After asking for hotel recommendations, she decided to stay at the Hotel de la Providence on the Rue de Vieux Augustin. This was close to where the Legislative Assembly was going to be meeting. Upon her arrival, the hotel's landlady asked her if the rumors about Khan were true. Charlotte asked what she meant. The woman said that she heard an army from Khan was marching on Paris. According to the book Charlotte Corday, Charlotte assured the landlady that, quote, there were not 30 people in the square in Caen when the drums beat the call for recruits to go to Paris, end quote. She didn't want the landlady to be suspicious of her. When Charlotte got to her room, she brought up the topic of Marat with the hotel steward. He told her that aristocrats hated him, but patriots loved him. He also told her that Marat would not be speaking at the meeting of the Legislative Assembly because he had been ill and confined to his home since June. Marat had a terrible illness and skin condition. Symptoms included blisters and sores that caused him itching, burning, and intense pain. These sores covered his entire body. There's disagreement amongst historians about what that disease was. Some say it was eczema, others say leprosy, and still others believe it was a histiocytic disorder. Marat himself claimed he contracted the disease while hiding in sewers during the revolution. In their article, The Skin of a Revolutionary, 
Dermatologists Koto Segura and Santos Juanes say that this condition may also have affected Mara's brain, making him paranoid and aggressive during his Jacobin rule. Mara was a doctor, but the only treatment he could ever find that brought him relief was soaking in a bath of medicinal herbs. He held many of his political meetings while in the bath, because it was the only time he could feel comfortable. Many people knew Marat had a skin condition, but Charlotte had stopped keeping tabs on him since May 31st, when the Girondists were kicked out of Paris. She didn't know how bad his condition had gotten, or that it would prevent him from speaking at the Legislative Assembly. It isn't clear exactly why she stopped paying attention to the news about Marat, but it seems like after he kicked the Girondists out of office, she had a one-track mind, focused on how she would get rid of him. To us, it seems counterproductive to not keep track of the enemy one is going to kill, but it's impossible for us to know where Charlotte's head was. As she took in this news, her heart beat fast. The realization set in. Her plan wouldn't work. She had risked everything to carry out this plan. She had to do something. So, she came up with a new plan that night. She would walk right into Marat's house and assassinate him there, in front of anyone who might be there. Anonymity was no longer an option. On July 11, 1793, 24-year-old Charlotte Corday was in Paris, staying at a hotel by herself, planning the assassination of Jean-Paul Marat. She had told her family and all of her friends two different stories. To her friends and cousin, she said she was moving to the countryside to live with her father. The second story, told to her father and sister, was that she would be moving to England to live with her uncle. She didn't want anyone to know where she was or what she was doing, for fear of them being incriminated by her actions. Since Charlotte no longer needed entry to the meeting of the Legislative Assembly, she didn't technically need to see Lowe's de Perret about her friend Alexandrine's pension, but she felt like she had to do something. She could still help her friend before she made her final stand. Charlotte always wanted to help as many people as possible. That afternoon, Charlotte went to Lowe's de Perret's house. He was eating dinner, but he invited Charlotte in and asked her about the Girondists and about the latest news. She didn't want to say too much because she didn't want him to get in trouble for associating with the Girondists. She told him snippets of news and also asked if he would meet her at the hotel in the morning so they could go see the Minister of the Interior about Alexandrine's pension. The following day, Friday, July 12th, Charlotte and Lowe's de Perret went to see the minister, but he wasn't in. They decided to go back the following day. That afternoon, however, Lowe's de Perret went back to see Charlotte. He told her he had found his house boarded up by the Jacobins. He had been accused of being a Girondist sympathizer. Charlotte tried to convince him to leave Paris immediately and go to her old hometown of Caen. She didn't want him near her in Paris because she worried that when she was caught, authorities would instantly suspect that he was also involved since the two had had contact over the past few days. That night, the night before the assassination, Charlotte stayed up in her hotel room writing letters. Since she now had to kill Marat in an intimate setting and had no hope of remaining an anonymous assassin, she felt that she owed an explanation and apology to the people she loved. She wrote to Barbaroux, her father, and the whole country of France. She planned to put the letter to France in her bodice when she went to commit the assassination the following day. 
That way, it would be found when she was arrested or killed. The letter read, quote, O France, thy peace depends on the fulfillment of the law. I am not assailing it in killing Marat, who has been condemned by the whole world. He is outside the law. If I am guilty, then Hercules too was guilty when he killed the monsters. But did he ever meet one so odious? End quote. Once again, Charlotte makes a reference to a famous heroic tale. In the last episode, we talked about Charlotte's love for stories about heroes, philosophy, and the tragedies her great-grandfather, Pierre Corneille, wrote. She seemed to be fascinated with literary characters who died or sacrificed themselves. According to psychologist Scott T. Allison, stories about heroes can inspire us and help us to become better people. Reading or hearing stories about heroes may cause us to feel elevated, which is, quote, a mix of awe, reverence, and admiration for a morally beautiful act, end quote. Allison also notes, the elevation we feel upon witnessing a heroic act transforms us into believing we're capable of heroic acts ourselves. In other words, Charlotte's fondness for heroes may have pushed her to want to be one. Many tragic things had happened in Charlotte's life that were out of her control. Her family was poor, her mother, sister, and newborn baby sister died when she was still an adolescent, and the French Revolution broke out, during which thousands of people were being gruesomely killed. She may have believed that she was the hero France needed. Charlotte's letter to her fellow countrymen expressed this. It contained a powerful statement of her martyrdom. Quote, I want my last breath to be of use to my fellow citizens, and my head, when it is carried around Paris, to be a rallying point for the friends of the law. May the tottering Montagna see its downfall written in my blood, and the world whose wrongs I have avenged declare that I have deserved well at the hands of men. End quote. Charlotte had the mindset of a martyr indeed. Psychologist Jocelyn Bellinger says... There are three main components to becoming a martyr. Need, network, and narrative. According to him, martyrs have a need to matter and to do something important. He says, quote, Willingness to risk life and limb for a cause re-injects meaning back into your life, end quote. Charlotte read about heroes from her earliest days, and that need to feel important likely came from those stories. Perhaps she wondered what people would write about her a simple girl from Khan. This war gave her a chance to show she was significant. Bellinger also notes that, quote, in times of hardship, people approach groups in order to fulfill their significance. Group members become family. Fear of death vanishes from mind and they become willing to self-sacrifice for their family, end quote. The Girondists became Charlotte's group. She was in Cannes with no family other than her cousin. Once she started making friends with fellow Girondists, these people became her family. And as we know, one of the reasons Charlotte decided to go to Paris when she did was so that the 17 Girondist men didn't have to go risk their lives. Finally, the narrative aspect of martyr psychology is the story that comes from the group. Bellinger says that the group's ideas permeate the self. All of these things explain Charlotte's willingness to sacrifice herself to kill Marat. And commit the assassination she would. The next day, July 13th, Charlotte couldn't sleep. 
She woke up early and walked around Paris, taking in the sights. The buildings, the river, the summer flowers. She waited for a shop to open so she could buy a weapon. She stopped at a shop and bought a kitchen knife for the price of two francs. After she bought the knife, she sat in the park while she waited for an appropriate time to go to Marat's house. Even in killing mode, she was polite. She arrived at Marat's house at 11 a.m. Marat's wife, Simone, and her sister, Catherine, answered the door. Charlotte said she had something important to tell Marat, but the women turned her away, saying he was too sick to accept visitors. Charlotte was crushed, but she wouldn't give up. She went back to the hotel and wrote a letter, which she sent to Marat's house. It read, quote, I have come from Caen. Your love for your country must make you wish to know about the conspiracies that are being hatched there. I await your reply, end quote. But a reply never came. She thought that maybe he hadn't received her letter. So she wrote another just in case and set out for Marat's house again. At 7.30 that night, Charlotte went back to Marat's house. She knocked on the door and was nearly turned away again, but Marat had just received her letter, and when he heard her announce her name at the door, he asked Simone and Catherine to let her in. He said he would see her while he was in the bath, the same way he had taken so many political meetings before. Charlotte walked into the room where the bathtub sat. She saw a weak man who was covered in boils, but she didn't care about his skin condition or the fact that he was struggling with his health. She just saw this as her opportunity. She had already changed her assassination plan once. She wasn't going to do it again. She knelt next to the tub and told him she had a list of names of Girondist traitors. She handed him the list. As he read it, he gleefully said, quote, their heads shall fall within a fortnight, end quote. While he was distracted, Charlotte saw her opportunity. She took the knife out of her bodice and plunged it into his chest. She stabbed him in the heart, killing him quickly. Marat cried out in pain, and Charlotte ran out of the room. But when she got to the hall, she realized she had nowhere to go. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, back to female criminals. On July 13, 1793, 24-year-old Charlotte Corday assassinated Jacobin leader Jean-Paul Marat in his own bathtub, with a knife thrust into his heart. She tried to flee the scene. In the hallway, she ran into one of Marat's household staffers. When their eyes met, he was able to piece it all together. The strange visitor, Marat's cry, the panicked expression on Charlotte's face. He shouted, help, help, murder, and hit Charlotte with a chair. He held her down until the authorities got there. Not once did she try to claim innocence. The police asked her, who taught you how to pierce Marat to the heart at the first blow? To which she replied, the indignation that filled my own. The police didn't think it was possible that a young woman would choose to do this all on her own. They thought she must be working for someone, or even considered she might be a paid assassin. To be fair, the truth was harder to believe. It was. 
A young woman with no known political connections and no history of violence turned fearless murderer would be hard to believe now, let alone in 1793. In 1793, women were wives and mothers, not cold-blooded killers. The police took Charlotte to the Abayi prison, the site of the violent September massacres in 1792. On the way to the prison, a mob tried to attack Charlotte for what she'd done. She fainted on the way there, but the guards kept her safe. They wanted a trial. They wanted justice. They wanted her head. Charlotte settled into prison and even wrote down Geronta's songs to give to her fellow prisoners to keep the movement alive. Many of the prisoners were just political prisoners, including other Girondist supporters, rather than murderers like Charlotte. All Charlotte could do now as she sat in her cold cell was plan for her trial. She had never wanted this, going on trial, explaining herself, being recognized by name. But now she didn't have a choice. On Monday night, the day after she was arrested, she asked if she could have her portrait painted. She wanted to give her friends and family something to remember her by. It's unclear why the authorities would agree to her request, but they did. According to the book Charlotte Corday, Charlotte said she wanted the portrait painted because, quote, just as the likeness of good citizens are cherished and held in honor, so curiosity may sometimes lead to a desire to know what great criminals looked like, since this would serve to perpetuate the horror felt for their crimes. End quote. The day after she requested her portrait was her trial, Tuesday, July 17th. That morning, she wrote her friend Barbaru a letter. In it, she said, quote, I never had any regard for life except as a means of being useful. End quote. Proving this point further, she requested that Barbaru continue to help their mutual friend, Alexandrine, to secure her pension. Charlotte requested that her friend from Cannes, Gustave Dulcet, now a member of the National Convention in Paris, represent her. Dulcet was a count who had renounced his title when the revolution began. Charlotte respected and liked him, but he never answered her correspondence. This was one of the only things in these few days that made Charlotte angry. It was revealed after Charlotte's death that he was out of town at the time of her trial and hadn't received the letter. Not being able to help her was one of his biggest regrets. Before Charlotte went off to her trial, she wrote her father a long letter, telling him the truth and asking for his forgiveness. This must have pained her deeply. She knew she had hurt her father, whom she loved very much. According to the book Charlotte Corday, Charlotte wrote, quote, Forgive me, my dear father, for having disposed of my life without your permission. I have avenged many an innocent victim and prevented many a disaster. One day, the people will learn the truth and rejoice in having been delivered from a tyrant. If I'd tried to make you believe that I was going to England, it was because I hoped to keep my identity unknown, but I found that impossible. I hope you will not be grieved. End quote. She ended the letter, quote, I beg you to forget me, or rather to rejoice in my fate. The cause for which I die is a noble one, end quote. She asked him to kiss her sister and all of her relatives goodbye, and closed with a line from her great-grandfather, Pierre Cornet, quote, It is the crime that brings shame and not the scaffold, end quote. At this point, 
going into the trial, Charlotte was sure she would be put to death. That's just what happened during the French Revolution. It was a violent time, and many people were guillotined. Nevertheless, Charlotte went to the trial with her head held high. The courtroom was packed with spectators. She was represented by a defense lawyer who was in the hallway of the courtroom at the time. His name was Claude Chavot Lagarde, and he would later go on to represent Marie Antoinette in her trial. As witnesses who were at Marat's house took the stand to recount the murder, Charlotte had nothing to deny. She said, quote, It is perfectly true. I have nothing to say, except that I succeeded. End quote. She confessed to the fact that she had planned the assassination in advance, and even told the lawyers her original plan. When asked by the lawyer why she killed Marat, she said she hoped to achieve the restoration of peace to my country. His reply was, Do you imagine that you have killed all the Marats then? To which she responded, He is dead, and perhaps the others will be frightened. Simply put, she hoped killing him would stop everyone else from wanting to continue with the violence. The trial didn't end well, but it did end as Charlotte expected. She was sentenced to death by beheading, which would take place later that same day. When she went back to the prison to await her fate, she sat for her portrait, painted by Jean-Jacques Auer. Not much is known about Jean-Jacques Auer. His most well-known pieces are the portrait of Charlotte and another painting he did later titled The Murder of Marat, which features Marat dead in his bathtub while Charlotte reaches for the door. There were several paintings of the assassination of Marat, as well as Marat dead in his bathtub, so Awares didn't necessarily stand out as being controversial or in poor taste. It's unclear why Aware was chosen to paint the portrait, what his political leanings were, or how he felt about Charlotte. After she sat for her portrait, someone came into the cell to cut Charlotte's hair. Long hair was the only thing that would slow the guillotine's blade, so everyone had to have their hair cut short. Charlotte gave a lock of hair to Aware as a payment for the portrait. The rest of her hair was put into a basket to save. Wigs were made from the hair of those executed by guillotine. Then, the door creaked open. It was time for Charlotte Corday to begin her trip to the guillotine. On the evening of July 17, 1793, 24-year-old Charlotte Corday went to the guillotine with no fear in her eyes, despite the brutal mob shouting and throwing things at her. As she rode in the carriage on the way to the execution site, she didn't fret. She was ready to face her fate. She arrived at the guillotine around 8 p.m. The crowd was large and loud for her execution. After all, many Parisians had loved Marat. As Charlotte knelt on the wet ground in front of the guillotine and looked around at the crowd, she looked content. She truly felt she was giving these people the peace they deserved. Without an ounce of remorse or fear, Charlotte Corday laid her head between the headlocks of the guillotine. She took her final breath as the blade crashed down, beheading her. Since the guillotine was first used, there were rumors that the victims' heads were still conscious after being cut off. After Charlotte was killed, one of the executioners picked up her head and slapped it across the face. According to spectators, Charlotte's beheaded head frowned and blushed. 
This wasn't a normal thing to do, and the executioner was arrested for his disrespectful act. Charlotte's body was taken to a hospital to be examined. After her death, rumors instantly started spreading. Gossip said that she was in love with Barbaru and was willing to die for anything he asked her to do for the Gerontis cause. Neither of these things were true, of course. The only thing she seemed to be in love with and willing to die for was her country. But the assassination she committed couldn't save France. On July 13th, the same day she killed Marat, Charlotte's friend, Bougon Langray, and the Girondist volunteers had a small battle with the Montagnards, Marat's extreme faction of Jacobins. The Girondists fled, and Bougon Langray became a wanted man and went into hiding. He was later executed. From September 5th, 1793, to July 27th, 1794, due to civil war and beheadings, 40,000 people were killed. This period of time was called the Reign of Terror and was headed up by Jacobin leader Maximilien Robespierre. Charlotte hadn't managed to bring peace to Paris by killing Marat, but it is possible that she helped make it less bloody than it would have otherwise been. The Jacobins arrested people they thought were enemies of the revolution. According to Britannica.com, at least 300,000 suspects were arrested, 17,000 were officially executed, and perhaps 10,000 died in prison or without trial. As for Charlotte, she was seen by many as a heroine of the French Revolution. According to psychologist Frank Farley, there are two kinds of heroism, big H and small H. Farley says, Big H heroism involves a potentially big risk, such as getting hurt, going to jail, or even death. He also says, people who risk their lives in the service of another are naturally more likely to take greater risks, and they also possess a great deal of compassion, kindness, empathy, and altruism. After her death, a man named Adam Lux a Girondist-leaning German who had recently moved to Paris and attended Charlotte's execution became obsessed with her. He had been planning to kill himself because of the atrocities being committed against the Girondists, so he saw Charlotte as a true hero. According to the book Charlotte Corday, Lux wrote a three-page eulogy for her, referring to her as a hero and a godlike figure. He wanted a statue of her erected in Paris. He was arrested and sentenced to death for his eulogy. As his head was in the headlocks of the guillotine, he said, I die for Charlotte. She had other worshippers throughout the years and has been immortalized in several paintings, plays, and novels. Many people find Charlotte's selfless act of martyrdom inspiring and brave. Though her act didn't bring peace to France, many find her willingness to die for her country honorable. Like her great-grandfather's literary characters, Charlotte's story has been shared for centuries. Though this may not have been her goal, it has been her fate. And all she had to do was die. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. You can find more Female Criminals and all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. 
Everyone always asks how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Stacey Milborn and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>